Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host as always, Daniel Levy, and joining me today on the very special quarantine edition of Half the Battle is UFC reporter Aaron Bronstetter of TSN. Aaron, welcome to Half the Battle. Thanks, Dan. It's uh, nice, uh, nice chatting with you. I wanted to hook up with you in Atlanta last year, but it was the most sick I've ever been covering a UFC event. I was in bed for like three days uh, trying to figure out what to eat on Uber Eats and never being able to figure it out, and then eventually walking out into the night of Atlanta to, to search for food. Well, incredibly sick and then settling for like pizza or wings, which is probably the worst thing you can eat while you're sick. But uh, I, I enjoyed Atlanta. I enjoyed A-Town, but it would have been nice to, uh, to connect with you. I know it would have, but at least you got to see Israel Adesanya versus Kelvin Gastelum and yeah, Dustin yeah. Poirier versus Max Holloway. Two of the greatest fights we've ever seen in the history of the sport live in person. So I'm sure that made up for uh, how you were feeling a little bit, right? Yeah, I would have preferred to see you than those two fights. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers. That's right. There's always next time uh, we will be sticking together. But the first thing I got to ask you, man, is, look, I've had all kinds of guests on during the quarantine edition. We're talking about fighters, some of my favorite members of the media, just people from all walks of life. And what I want to know is, how's this quarantine life been treating you, Aaron? Well, it's been good. I've got three kids at home, so I'm chasing after them quite a bit. But uh, I've kind of made the basement my home office. So I have the basement myself for most of the day. Go up, eat lunch, see the family for a bit. Uh, if my wife needs help, I can go up and, and help her out. But a lot of my time is spent down here watching fights and, uh, and preparing for UFC 249, doing interviews like yourself, and uh, just, just trying to make it as normal as possible. I mean, obviously, I'm not at my desk. I'm not at the office. So it, it takes me out of that element a little bit more. But I feel like I almost have to overcompensate because I'm at home. It feels like I, I don't want to rest on my laurels. I want to just keep doing as much content as possible. I mean, I think that's probably the best way to approach it. And uh I just kind of want to know, is there much of a difference over there in Toronto compared to here in Atlanta? It seems like there probably isn't. I mean, it's all uh, you're following the same protocol, I assume. Yeah, same protocol. We're at home, social distancing. I'm not going out much. I go to the grocery store once a week. And uh, we've gotten takeout, I think, once, maybe twice. We're, we're, we're really trying to uh, follow the protocols. But also, I, you know, with, with takeout, we were very hesitant to, to get takeout before. But then we thought about all the local businesses that are struggling. And we, we really want to kind of do our best to help. Uh, help them out during this time also it's important to think about them a hundred percent and i think that's a great point and also when you do that you don't have to tiptoe through a minefield like a like the supermarket is and one thing i've actually been doing is i've been ordering this uh this thing called instacart and they go pick up your groceries for you and bring them do that once a week that way i don't have to step foot in there take any risks and uh man it's just such unique times we've never experienced anything like this ever before in our lives aaron yeah, you know, it makes you really take for uh, show how much you take for granted the little things like just go, walking into a mall or, uh, you know, being being with friends out at a bar, having friends over, <laughs> seeing your family. I mean, it's the little things that we, we don't really get to do quite as much. Yeah, it truly is. So, I mean, any uh, good sources of entertainment in your downtime here during the quarantine life? Not really. I have about an hour a day when my kids are sleeping. I've been watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine a lot with my son. It's my, I guess, second go-around for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's nine years old. A lot of the jokes are very inappropriate for him, but he's like, he laughs harder than anybody I've ever seen laugh at jokes before. So I feel like it's like, I don't know. I, I'm justifying it that way. He just gets so much enjoyment out of it that we can't like take it away from him now that he's been experiencing it. We can, we can, uh, I guess, watch the episodes with him and then if one of them gets a little bit too risque for him we, we can switch to another one he's been okay with that but uh yeah that, that's kind of what i've been watching is, is brooklyn 99 I, I started tiger king i've started the last dance so i'm i'm trying to watch those whenever i get the chance but uh it hasn't uh i've, I've seldom had the chance to enjoy that kind of entertainment 
Yeah, you know, you'd think with so much quote-unquote downtime that you'd be able to catch up on some shows and, you know, watch some new things. But it's cool to see you on your grind uh, 24-7, basically, Aaron. Yeah, it, it never stops. You know, if I'm if I'm not doing this, I'm, I'm watching the kids and, uh, and helping out at home. So, uh, yeah, enter, entertainment time. I thought I'd have a lot more of it. I thought I'd have time to read some books. No, not, not so much. You know, I, I'm getting enjoyment from being down here and, and breaking down uh, the fights, watching some old Dominic Cruz tape has been a real pleasure. So uh, that kind of thing is where I'm, I'm getting my silver lining. Well, uh, I think we got to talk about that right off the bat, because look, when you talk about a guy like Dominic Cruz, you're talking about some of the most innovative footwork in the history of the sport. When this guy was champion in the WEC, no one had ever seen anything like that before. People were wondering, what the hell is this guy doing? And it's funny because you take it a step further and you talk to some of his old teammates, like for example, Brandon Vera, who used to train with him back at Alliance. And uh, Brandon used to talk about how after practice, okay, so they've already trained for two hours straight, Aaron. After practice, it's Dominic Cruz by himself just working on his footwork. And everyone's like, why the hell is this guy dancing around like a fucking idiot? And then uh, a couple <laughs> world championship uh, title belts later, and no one's asking any questions, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, you look at what Tony Ferguson does, uh, spinning on his head. He's, he's using weights with, like, these things that spin on them. And you, you think, wow, this guy's a total weirdo, but it, whatever he's doing seems to be working for him. No, it truly does. And on the topic of this fight, because it's interesting, historically speaking, long reigning champions that lost their belts don't often come back to touch gold again. But Dominic Cruz is such an anomaly in the sense that a lot of people are going to use this layoff against him, Aaron. And the reason I'm not is because we've seen Dominic Cruz come off an extensive layoff and not just win a fight, Aaron, but touch UFC gold when he dethroned uh, TJ Dillashaw in Boston. Well, yeah, if he wins this fight, it's one of the best stories in the history of MMA. Uh, you know, I, I did an essay about it for, for TSN that's going to air on SportsCenter, a visual essay. And it talks about basically how if you do it once, um, if, if you make a comeback, you win the belt. It's it's a great story, a great feel-good story. If you do it twice, you're a legend. I mean, th that's what's on the line for Dominic Cruz. It's just total legendary status. You won't find many that argue whether or not he's the best bantamweight of all time. I'm seeing a lot of people pop in and being like, well, if Cejudo wins, he's the best bantamweight of all time. Well, sorry, like he, this would be his second bantamweight fight that he's won of, of consequence. I mean, I know he he dabbled in bantamweight a little bit earlier when he was having trouble making weight for plyweight. But how can you call a guy the best bantamweight ever when he's won two fights? Like, I know who he's beaten. Like, I get it. He's beaten Marlon Rice. Uh, and he's beaten Dominic Cruz. That's an incredible resume. The win over TJ Dillashaw was at flyweight, so I don't count that. And the win over Demetrius Johnson's at flyweight. And uh, again, a fantastic resume. And you can put him up, you know, on a list of kind of all-time greats for sure with with that kind of a resume. But in terms of bantamweight greats, I don't I don't think a win over Dominic Cruz on his the longest layoff of his, of his career would make him the greatest bantamweight of all time. I still think there's a long way to go for him to catch Dominic Cruz and what Dominic Cruz was able to do in his career. Yeah, and at the same time, we can't discredit the greatness of Cejudo because even though we can't say, oh, he's the number one bantamweight of all time, one can make an argument that he's one of the greater lower weight fighters of oh, all for time. Sure. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying is like you, you can't question his greatness from an all time perspective, given that resume. I mean, you got his four four wins in a row would be if he beats Cruz would be Demetrius Johnson, TJ Dillashaw, Marlon Moraes and uh, Dominic Cruz. That's about as good of a four fight win streak as you'll get. Um, and I mean, that's not the full streak, but the, the best like, you know, consecutive wins that you'll get. So you can certainly cement his status as one of the great uh, lighter weight fighters of all time, like you just said. It, just in terms of bantamweight as a whole, I don't think he'd surpass Cruz just from that one win. I think he still has a ways to go. Yeah, and I mean, if you ask him, if his opinion is any indication, he's going to stick there for a long time and take on all kinds of comers. Now, I know... 
that he's been getting a lot of heat for the kinds of fights he's been asking for. But I feel like he's in a position where he deserves that legend fight. When you look at who he's beat, and you already mentioned the guys, Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson, who was the champion at the time, TJ Dillashaw, who was the Bantamweight champion at the time, Marlon Moraes, who was one of the scariest fighters in the entire division, and now Dominic Cruz, who many people consider to be the GOAT. So people are giving Cejudo crap because he's not taking the fight with Sterling or Yan or Sanhagen. Now, I think these three fighters are great, but one point I want to bring to the table is neither of these guys have even headlined a fight night before, Aaron. So I feel like Cejudo earned the right to take on the former champion, the future Hall of Famer, Dominic Cruz. If he gets past this fight, then we can talk about the young up-and-comers getting a title shot. Yeah, sure. I mean, from a promotional standpoint, this fight makes all the sense in the world. Um, but in terms of the pecking order, in terms of bantamweight, I feel bad for a lot of these prospects. Just because if you look at the last couple of years of bantamweight, up until Cejudo beat Marais, the only four guys that have competed for the bantamweight title over the course of like three years was Faber, Cruz, Dillashaw, and Cody Garbrandt. So the division has been really stagnant for a long time. So I do feel for a lot of these contenders. However, if this event is taking place on May 9th, the only real other possibility would be Sanhagen. Because Jan is trapped in Russia. Uh, he can't travel. Sterling says he doesn't want to fight right now because he's in New York, which is like ground zero of the pandemic in the U.S. Um, so w when you look at those two, two being out of the equation, if Sanhagen's the only other option, Sanhagen is a great prospect. I think, he's, I think he could be a champion one day. In fact, I think he will be a champion one day. But I, I also think that, you know, if, if you're going to choose between Sanhagen and Cruz— I think you kind of have to go with Cruz just because of the name recognition, because of Cruz's accomplishments. Cruz has still been relevant because he's been an analyst over the course of the, the last couple of years, so he has that recognition. Uh, and, of course, just the resume speaks for itself for Dominic Cruz. So I think that from a promotional standpoint, it makes all the sense in the world. Personally, I think from a, a meritocracy standpoint, maybe it doesn't. He's coming off a loss. He's been away for three and a half years. Ronda Rousey has fought more recently than he has in the UFC, which is just a crazy thing to, to think about. Uh, so I do understand why people think that the, the prospects might make a bit more sense from a merit standpoint. But uh, I think if you're a promotion and you're trying to sell fights, uh, crews make way more sense. Yeah, and tell me your impression of uh, Henry Cejudo's improvements. Are, are you impressed? Because... Basically, when he first came into the UFC, he had all the athletic tools. You saw the potential. You saw glimpses here and there. But since that first Mighty Mouse fight, I really feel like not only is he putting it all together in terms of the skill set, but the guy's really filling out his frame. He's looking bigger than he's ever looked, more explosive. I really feel like that work at NeuroForce One and Fight Ready is uh, paying dividends. And we're seeing the best version of Henry Cejudo we've ever seen, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the resilience is a big part of that, too. You know, if you look at what happened uh, to him in the first fight against Demetrius Johnson, to come back and fight Demetrius Johnson the way that he did and win that fight, it was a very close fight. It really could have gone either way. But to, to really hang with the guy that was bit, practically unbeatable before that shows the resilience that he had, that he was able to mentally overcome the barrier of being knocked out in the fashion that he was by Demetrius the first time around. And then you look at the Marais fight. That first first round, he, he took a beating. I mean, Marais is one of the scariest guys in the division. And then the, the way that Cejudo, while injured, was able to turn the corner and come back and win that fight in the way that he did is just absolutely remarkable. Um, and those are two of the last uh, three fights that he's had. Just that kind of resilience, that ability to overcome the obstacles, the mental obstacles, injuries, uh, those are what set apart the, the, the good fighters from the great fighters. And I think that Henry Cejudo has certainly established himself in the latter category.
Now, if you can, I want your opinion on this because I know I have my own opinion, but I want to hear yours. So when you look back at a fight between Dominic Cruz and Cody Garbrandt, now at the time, many people were calling that a once in a lifetime performance. Now, is it indeed a once in a lifetime athletic performance or was it simply an indicator that maybe that was the end of Dominic Cruz's title run? Because you saw Cody Garbrandt not have anywhere near that kind of success in his uh, subsequent three fights. Well, I think it's matchups, really. I mean, if, if you look at it from a matchup standpoint, the guys that Garbrandt fought after uh, he fought against Cruz had a lot more power. There were people that, that were able to put people out. Um, and Cruz's and Garbrandt's chin, I guess it's hard to argue that that's really his kryptonite. I mean, if you look at what happened to him against Pedro Munoz, you look at him against uh, in those two fights against Dillashaw, um, his chin really let him down in those spots. Whereas when you're against Cruz and it's a more technical fight, I, I think that Cody just showed that at that time, it was kind of a perfect storm for him. Like I, he had the full team alpha male behind him. You know, he had buckholes in his corner who seemed to really make a difference for him, who has since passed, uh, you know, I guess left team alpha male and has done his own thing. I think that the, the loss of, of Justin Buckholes was a real, uh, I guess, really, really took a toll on his career. Um, and then you, you just look at that performance by Cruz. Cruz looked like he was missing a step in that fight. He looked like he was getting flummoxed by Cody Garbrandt, just a younger guy, a guy who, who had caught up to him in speed. I don't know if that's going to be the same situation in this particular fight because I, ju I just don't think that the technical striking is there for Cejudo. I think the power striking is there. I think he has the power. And I do think that the, te the technical striking has improved. If you look at the Demetrius Johnson fight, him being able to flummox a guy like Demetrius Johnson shows that he does have the technique. But against Cruz, I mean, you're going to have to see a lot of footwork. And I think that Cody Garbrandt has really good footwork, really good boxing, underrated boxing. Um, and I just think that in the recent Garbrandt fights, his, his chin let him down. I just think that Garbrandt was the better man that night. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't write off Dominic Cruz because of that one performance. It could have been an anomaly. Different fighters are different on different nights, right? Like, you're not going to get the same fighter every single day, day in and day out. Sometimes they overtrain. Sometimes they just have a hiccup on, on, on a given night. And I just think that Garbrandt was the better fighter that night. If you go back and watch that fight, Garbrandt just got the better of him. And it wasn't that Dominic Cruz had, uh, you know, was missing anything. It just seemed like the matchup was off on that particular night. And I don't want to write off Dominic Cruz because of that one performance. I think that I need to see how he's going to look against Cejudo before I can really make a judgment of where he's at in his career. And that's what makes this fight such a hard one to, to, to pick. I think based on the line, you kind of have to go in the direction of Dominic Cruz. He's what, like a two to one underdog in this spot. I just think that getting Dominic Cruz as a two to one underdog against just about anybody in the world is, is, a, is something you have to look at. Now, historically speaking, you have a lot of truth in what you're saying. It's just a case of, is this that situation where history repeats itself? The long reigning champion isn't able to regain their throne. Plus, you look at a guy like Cejudo making so many improvements, feeling more confident than he's ever felt. But the last angle I want to tackle on this fight is that, again, the historical context, uh, Cruz has a great history versus these short wrestlers. I mean, you know his resume, beat guys like Faber, beat mm. Joseph Benavidez, even came back off a layoff and dethroned TJ Dillashaw. Now, granted, Henry Cejudo is a different kind of athlete, but stylistically speaking, could this be a deja vu for Dominic Cruz? I mean, yeah, very much so. I think that, that makes a, you make a great point there. Um, it's just going to be a matter of whether Cruz has lost his depth, uh, because obviously the speed of Cejudo is going to be something that could flummox him. Um, you know, it would be a faster guy. But that said, like, is, is Cejudo going to be that much faster than Joseph Benavidez's WEC era was? Like, I, I don't know. That's why we've got to see where Dominic Cruz is at. And that's what makes this such a hard fight to, to predict. 
because you're predicting something that you can't again you can't really put uh, a value on where Cruz is at right now because we just don't know and with Cruz being an analyst and watching all of these fights over the years and watching how the game has evolved like you you can take a lot from that role from being an analyst from watching all that tape it's not something you would normally do when you're training for an opponent is watching tape of all these different fighters and learning things just from watching them and saying oh how did they do that and then interviewing them also because during fight week Cruz gets like a good 20 minutes with each of these fighters he gets to talk to them he gets to learn about them and then learn about different techniques that they are able to implement and and that kind of thing can't be understated when you're when you're growing as an athlete because you're not going to see the same Dominic Cruz that we saw against Cody Garbrandt it's going to be different and whether it's good different or bad different we'll see but I I think I would trend towards him ha- having improved since that fight against Garbrandt as crazy that sounds at, at this age and when I say at this age he's not even that old he's born in 1985 right so he's, he's 34 years old it, it's not it's not super old it's not unthinkable to to think that he he might still be the same Dominic Cruz that we're accustomed to yeah, and another good point is that even though it has been a four-year layoff, Cruz isn't a guy that takes a lot of damage, so it's not like he's been knocked out a bunch of times and trying to come back and, you know, the chin never recovers. The guy rarely takes too much damage besides that fight against Garbrandt, so I can't wait to see his return. And another fight I'm really looking forward to is the ESPN prelim main event between Anthony Showtime Pettis and Donald Cerrone. Now, as you know, this is a rematch of their first fight, which took place in 2013, and back then Anthony Pettis was looking untouchable I mean it was to the point where you you fast forward a bit when he won the belt defended it Dana even went as far as saying Anthony Pettis is the number one pound for pound fighter on the planet right now he got the Wheaties box it was really looking like the aura of Anthony Pettis his performances he was doing things that we had never seen before even backtrack to the WEC when he had the monumental showtime kick I feel like to this point it's actually a very underrated move. People don't talk about it like they used to. But, man, I remember when that happened, we jumped off the seats of our couch. You know, it was unlike anything we had ever seen before at the time. And uh, since that point that, you know, he lost the belt to RDA, it's been hit or miss. But with Cerrone, it's also hit or miss. But it's one of those things where, like, I feel Cerrone's been consistent in the sense that throughout his entire career... If you're not a top five guy, if you're not a title challenger, if you're not a champion, Donald Cerrone is not just going to beat you, Aaron. He's going to run through you. And I feel like that stayed consistent because I know people want to give him a little heat for his last three fights. But I really, truly believe that at any point in Donald Cerrone's career, he would have lost to Ferguson, Gaethje, uh, McGregor, right? So... I'm not holding those losses against him, but that being said, is it a case where Anthony Pettis will always be a bad matchup for Cerrone, or is this a spot where Cerrone can capitalize on the current form of Pettis and come come out here and get get his uh get his vengeance? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned uh, the Showtime kick, and I was thinking about this particular card and how many different highlight reel finishes the people on them have had. You've got the Showtime kick, you've got that Overeem finish from uh, Francis Ngannou, you've got uh, the Rick Story combo that Cerrone landed, you've got the um, uh, Tony Ferguson against Kakuno was a crazy highlight, you've got Justin Gaethje on the break against Barboza where he hits him with that overhand. Uh, Like, there are just so many crazy highlights that have come from the individuals that are on this card, and I'm sure there are many that I'm forgetting, even Jeremy Stevens, I'm sure, has had a bunch. Um, But to to go back to your original question, uh, yeah, this is an interesting one because I think it's being at 170, I I feel like it's kind of a different fight. But at the same time, you've still got kind of the same fighters. They've just both gotten bigger a little bit. I mean, if you've seen Anthony Pettis walk around, 
uh, at his normal walk around weight now, like he's got to be at around 190. Like he's a, he's a big dude. He's in the 190s for sure. Um, I don't think he needs to cut to 155 anymore. I think he should stay at, at welterweight. And I would say the same for Cerrone. The problem is they're, they're both kind of 65ers. So they'll be on the smaller side against a lot of the different – like imagine seeing like uh, Anthony Pettis against uh, Tyron Woodley. And that's a bad example because they're training partners. But Woodley would just dwarf him. Uh, that being said, I still think that this is the right division for Pettis. Um, this is going to be an interesting one because I looked at the strength of schedule – I posted uh, something yesterday on who has the, the toughest strength of schedule from 2010 to 2019. And Pettis was one of my nominees. He, basically, he's just fought murderer's row. And then a lot of people said, well, what about Cerrone? And I said, well, Cerrone has fought murderer's row also, but he's also, you know, strength of schedule if you're a fan of the NFL. The way strength of schedule works is you take kind of the mean, like the average of, of the, the opponents. So I, I think Cerrone's kind of ruled out because in terms of sheer volume of fights, it's certainly the degree of difficulty is there, but strength of schedule doesn't really bring that into effect. He's fighting a lot of the guys like and Alexander Hernandez, as good as he is, will lower the the average of, of skill level that you fight or or the Rick stories of the world. Whereas Pettis was fighting RDA. He's fighting uh, Tony Ferguson. He's fighting um, basically a who's who of champions. And he was the champion himself. He's fighting Ben Henderson. He's fighting, uh, he's fighting Max Holloway, Charles Oliveira. Like these are big, big name guys, uh, tough, tough matchups. So both of them have taken their damage over the last decade. I don't think they're going to be the same fighter ever again, either of them. Like, I don't think either of them will ever contend for a, fight, a title again, in my opinion. Um, but I do think that Pettis right now is a little bit ahead of where Cerrone is. In my opinion, I would, I would lean Pettis in this fight. I think Pettis is going to be faster. I think he's going to be more dangerous on the feet. He's going to be more dangerous on the ground if it gets there. I think he's got the better chin at this point in time. So I just think that if you look at it, you know, skill for skill, that I think Pettis has the advantages in a lot of different categories. I want to say this, though. So all those fighters you mentioned that Pettis uh, has fought, Cerrone's fought them all, too, except Max Holloway. And mm-hmm. one more thing I want to mention is that since uh, their first fight, so Pettis has gone 4-8, and eight, which is uh, 12 fights. Now, Cerrone's actually had more losses than that. He's had nine losses since then. But, <laughs> but how many more wins? <laughs> exactly. He's also had 17 wins. So while you are correct uh, that you know guys like John McDessie and this and that might lower the stock a little bit, it's, it's just that it, it, it lowers the strength of schedule. That's yeah, the yeah. thing I'm looking at. Strength of schedule is, regardless of wins and losses, it's regardless of, of, uh, of how many times you fight, it's just who you fought. And I think that in terms of strength of schedule, like Pettis has had a crazy one. Uh, the other guys I mentioned were Alvarez, uh, John Jones, Daniel Cormier, and uh, Jose Aldo. Like, their strength of schedule for the last 10 years is just absurd. Yeah, it's just uh, back to Cerrone. He's gone 17 and 9 since the time they fought. So the dude's literally taking on all comers. Like, he doesn't care. He'll fight literally anyone. And what's interesting to me about this fight, obviously with the circumstances, the the short notice, everything. Um, I don't know if you know, but uh, you know uh, Pettis hasn't done this fight in Milwaukee with Duke Rufus, right? He's in Vegas doing it. That's kind of interesting to me. That's a new mm, little that, that's wrinkle. Not, that's not what I've heard. I've heard that he's in Milwaukee and he's training right now. Oh, so he returned? So he only did like a week or two in Milwaukee then because, I mean, last week he was in Vegas. Yeah, he's currently in Milwaukee training, from what I understand. That's good. So yeah, at least he, he gets... Yeah, like, it's, it's like him, Sergio, um, Emmanuel Sanchez, um, uh, Gerald Mearshart, uh, I think Brandon Allen's in the mix there. Like They have they have kind of a rotating cast of people that are training with, with Pettis right now. Well, that's good because, uh, you know, the first part of this camp he did in Vegas, and I was kind of wondering, like, you know, is he going to go back to Milwaukee? So at least he's finishing up his camp in milwaukee i'm really glad to hear that with him, yeah. 
And uh, with Cerrone, you know he's got the BMF Ranch. He's doing his thing over there. He's got his own people. He's got his own gym. So I'm very curious about the preparation aspect of things. Uh, is this going to be the best version of both guys? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious to see. But, I mean, I think that in terms of training, you got to give Cerrone the nod just because he manages the whole thing himself. Like, it's, it's, on, it's on his terms. It's in uh, with his training partners. He, he calls the shots. He can do it whenever he wants. He can just go next door to the gym. Guys like him and Tony Ferguson have a bit of a market advantage over their opponents because of that, because they basically live where they train, um, and that that puts them in a uh, different situation. Now, uh, last but not least, a couple more things before I let you go, man. So, look, not all, but many media members have been criticized for being too negative around what's been going on, and as a result, Dana doesn't want to provide them with any information. Now. You've always been on their good side. I've always respected your work, and I've never heard Aaron Bronsted or complain about anything. How do you stay positive, not just in these times, Aaron, but in general? How do I stay positive? Well, I mean, I just think of it as learning experience. It's just a different – you just kind of have to adapt, right? Like, as humans, we're, we're designed to adapt. So I'm just adapting, and I'm, I'm enjoying my time here. I get to spend more time with my family. There's pros and cons to everything, right? Like, you just got to look at the pros, and I'm kind of an optimist in that sense. Um, yeah, and in terms of Dana White, like, I, I know that I don't think that he was thrilled with one of the questions that I asked him the last time we spoke. Um, I try to always ask the questions that I think people want the answers to. Sometimes that rubs them the wrong way. It is what it is. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that a lot of media members have been forced to pick a side where I don't think it's really necessary. Like, I don't think you need to say well, this is the wrong thing to do or the right thing to do. I think you need to take the information that you have. You have to look at both sides of the story. You have to understand why the UFC is doing it. You have to understand why it might not be a good idea. But we can reserve that kind of judgment. We have to see how it works. We have to see how they do it. That, you know, they're doing it above board this time. I think that this is the, the big situation with this particular card is that last time when they wanted to do it April 18th, they wanted to do it on tribal land. And I think that once Disney caught wind of that and they were like, oh, well, this is not they're not going according to the real government regulations. That's why they shut it down. Now they're in Florida. It's going to be commissioned by the Florida State Athletic Commission. The, the governor signed off. The mayor of Jacksonville signed off. Every, you know, all their ducks are in a row. So they're doing it in a way where, um, you know, you know, they're doing it above board. So now we just have to see what happens. We have to watch. And I think that the UFC and MMA combat sports really as a whole are kind of tailor made for this sort of situation because, um, gate for the, for the UFC is not a huge um, part of how they make their money. It's mostly on rights. So losing gate, you know, obviously it will be a loss, but it's not going to be a massive loss to them. Um, the fighters don't travel with them for all the different events. Like the, the fighters are going to leave after they're done. They can go home. They can self-isolate for 14 days, quarantine, make sure that if they did somehow come in, co in contact with the coronavirus, whether it's flying to the event, whatever, they, they stay away from their families. Um, you're not going to see the same people week in and week out. Whereas if you're doing basketball, you're doing soccer, you're doing hockey, these are team sports. Everybody's with each other in the locker room. It can be a petri dish for germs. One person gets it, the rest of the team is prone to getting it. Whereas in the UFC, nobody's hanging around. They're going home. <laughs> so it makes it a little bit of a different circumstance for the UFC. And I, I just think that a lot of people were, were, were overthinking things. You're trying to like come up with the epidemiology and you're looking at the science, the scientific uh, rationale for why you shouldn't hold the event. Um, I think that that that's not for us to do. We're here to cover the sport. We're not here to cover the coronavirus. We're here to cover MMA. Um, and that's kind of my, the way that I've approached it is, you know, don't don't try to overthink things. Don't try to, um, 
you know, do too much research on the coronavirus because it's going to be it's changing on a day to day basis. Like this is a totally fluid situation. It's nothing like we've seen in our life lifetimes. It's nothing that the epidemiologists have seen in their lifetimes. Right. So if we if they if they are seeing it change on a day to day basis, who are we to try to assess it when um, it's not really our wheelhouse? So you just kind of have to go with it on a day to day basis. You can't make umbrella statements and you, you kind of have to wait and see how things play out before you, you make a, a grand judgment, in my opinion. Well, that's a good uh, note to end the show on. So last thing for me, you've been doing a show with uh, GM3, Gerald Murchard. Uh, y'all been going through some classic records, stuff like that. Tell us about that and any other work you want to let the fans of Half the Battle know about, Aaron. Yeah, Gerald and I, we were doing it daily, but uh, now we've switched to doing it weekly where we look at an album every week. We uh, recommend one to the other person and then we, uh, we um, I guess, listen to those albums and then discuss them and that was kind of a thing that once once i saw gerald playing the saxophone i sent him a message and saying hey how would you like to listen to an album every day and talk to him talk to me about it he was like yeah that sounds awesome i barely even knew gerald at that point and now gerald and i have connected quite a bit which is nice um so we're doing that you can test that on my twitter account at aaron bronstetter and a lot of the other work i'm doing is on tsn's youtube page a lot of the interviews i'm doing um are ending up there some of them are on tsn.ca i'm posting clips of them on social media um and, uh, you know, we've got some essays rolling out on SportsCenter. Myself and Robin Black are going to be doing some hits. Robin Black is uh, my colleague at TSN, um, who I brought on uh, along with me to, to help um, educate people on mixed martial arts. You know, one of the things Robin is fantastic at is taking a difficult uh, thing to grasp if you're not into MMA, making it um, easier for people to digest and explaining it to people in a way that, that's more accessible to those who don't really know MMA. And I think, I think Robin's a master at that. So that's why he's been so valuable to TSN. Um, so we're going to be covering that. I'm going to be doing uh, some periscopes um, leading up to the event, some Q and A's. Uh, my uh, my regular breakdown that I do beforehand. I'll probably have Dan Tom on with me where we talk about the fights uh, beforehand, um, and just a lot of content. So just just stay on my social media, and I'll be linking to all of that. And I, I appreciate you for uh, having me on, Dan. I'm a, a listener of your show. I listen to it weekly. Yourself and Shaq. Uh, well, hopefully weekly again in the future, but yourself and Shaq breaking down the fights. I, I learn a lot from the show. I listen to a lot of these kind of breakdown shows, yours, Dan Tom's, uh, the ones that, that uh, Paul, Sh- Paul Shaughnessy and uh, CJ Saftik do. So I listen to all of these different shows just to hear people's takes and, and their takeaways from how these individuals compete, their, their different skills. And I, I like listening to it just to get a um, primed for each individual matchup leading in. A lot of the different reporters like to look at just the stories, the narratives. I like that stuff too, but I also think that the matchups are really important to look at as well, just to just so that you know what you're watching. Well, Aaron, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me right here, right now on Half the Battle. It's been an absolute pleasure. The fans can follow you at Aaron Bronstetter. Uh, any message for the fans before we go? I love you all. Thank you for uh, watching my work, listening to my work. And if you haven't and you're listening to me for the first time, please do give me a follow. And if you like what you see, continue to follow. And if not, feel free to unfollow. It doesn't cost any money. <laughs> well, definitely give uh, my man Aaron Bronstetter a follow. Uh, for all the fans, thank you all so much for your support. You can follow me at Best Fight Picks. Subscribe to Half the Battle on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, all the places where we are available. We will be back next week to break down UFC 249. Also have another quarantine edition coming out tomorrow with uh, UFC lightweight Drew Dober. He's in the best point of his career. Guy's got an elite winner's mindset. Really, truly someone fascinating to hear talk. So definitely tune in for that. And until the next time, let's cash these bets.